Well, good morning, everyone. How y'all doing today? Good. Uh, my name's Russ. I'm one of the pastors here. If it's your first time, let me echo what Steph said. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we are a new church plant, and we believe no matter where you are on the spiritual journey, there's room at the table. And you actually are joining us at a really exciting time because we're in a new series called Questions. And pretty much the basic premise behind questions is that we wanted to know what you're interested about. We wanted to take um, those questions of faith, those deep matters of the heart, and turn them into sermons. And shocking, no one wanted to know how much Jesus loved them or like who Jesus is. Y'all went right for the jugular. But I think that's really cool. And I think it's, um, it's a symbolic of what our DNA is gonna be. Because we are gonna be a community that's not afraid of asking tough questions. And I'm gonna be honest, I don't have all the answers. Um, I think the more one dives into scripture, the more you find it can be messy sometimes in there. But we are gonna be a community not afraid of going there. And so uh, before we get into today's topic, today's question, just three qualifiers uh, for, our, for this series. First, many of the questions you're gonna find possess kind of what I just said, interscriptural tension. That is to say, if you were looking for one side of a topic, you could find the, the passages and the verses that would support your opinion. If you're looking for the other side, you could find the, the passages or the verses that support that interpretation. Therefore, um, some of these questions can be more speculative than essential, which leads us to the next qualifier. We have three pillars at Hope Brooklyn. These are three pillars that define who we are as a community. First, we are crowds and disciples. That's our way of saying that no matter where you are on the spiritual journey, there's room for you in this church. But what that means related to some of these questions is where you are on the spectrum will determine how you hear the topic. Which takes us to pillar number two, we are a community of the story. For us, Christianity is less a set of propositions that we sort of assent to, and it's more a story that captivates our hearts, that invites us into a, an adventure, a way of life um, that is far more embodied than cognitive. And that actually will bode well uh, for today's topic. And finally, third pillar, we eat together face to face. Can I get an amen for that one? Amen. Yes. We always share a meal. Everything, uh, when, I, when I study scripture, when I study Jesus's ministry, he was constantly eating. One scholar said in the book of Luke, he's, he's either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Food is the great humanizer, it's the great equalizer, it's how we can discuss these deep questions of faith where we might have various interpretations on it. So, I'm gonna present my way of interpreting um, as honest as I can about the passage, but you might disagree, that's okay. We lose as a community if we don't end up around the table together. That's how we lose. Because what did Jesus say about the church? They will know us by what? Not our knowledge, our love. They will know us by our love. And wouldn't it be an incredible counter witness to society to have people who disagree about topics sitting at the same table eating together? So those are our three pillars. And then the last qualifier before we jump into today is a quote from Stanley Hauerwas who goes, there's nothing more harmful than to answer a malformed question. There's nothing more harmful than to answer a malformed question. Not to say you ask malformed questions, but it is to say sometimes we ask a question or we think we're, we're um, interested in this, but there's really a question beneath the question, right? There's something beneath it that we're really getting at. 
So as I sort of gathered all these questions and um, figured out what's really being asked, I was looking for that. I was looking, what's the question beneath the question? Will you pray with me before we get started today? Jesus, we know your story. We've heard of the God who gives up his God-likeness, who comes to earth in human flesh, who lives a life that draws all people to it, that's magnetic, but who's misunderstood, who's condemned and unjustly killed because you were just too free. And we don't know how to handle freedom like that. But who did not stay dead, but who was raised to life again now proclaiming forgiveness of sins, reconciliation to all creation back to the Father. We know that story. We wanna know it better. We wanna know you better. We wanna follow you well. Today, Lord, as we talk about singleness and sex in our society and what your scripture might have to offer up to us, give us open hearts and open ears. Let us know that you are for us you're not against us, that you are inviting us into a story that is far more exciting than the one we could write for ourselves. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray, amen. So today's topic, I sort of just said it, um, talking about sex and society in the 21st century. What does scripture have to say about it? If you're the single people in the room, what does scripture have to say about purity, about sexuality? And before we jump into uh, the passage today, I just want to say one thing. Um, this is a lonely city. I know it. I know many of you in this room. I have had the privilege of hearing your stories. And I know many people here are lonely. As we'll get into later, uh, I think our society only knows how to produce lonely people. And I'll explain why that is. But I know that many people in this room put on a, a face, put on a front, but inside are deeply, deeply hurting and broken. And as one woman was uh, talking to Anna and me, says, I just wanna be standing on the subway platform and someone just to put their arms around me and say, I choose you. I claim you, you are mine. I know it's difficult being unclaimed, so to speak. There's nothing I can say today that won't sound a bit hollow. There's nothing I can say that will make you feel better. That's not my intention, to make you feel better. Moreover, I don't have the answer you're looking for, but I do promise that I will be as honest and as truthful as possible. And I think one of the gifts of the church that Jesus left for the church in this issue or many other topics is that we don't have answers, but what we do have is presence. What we do have is love. And so we're here. We're in this together. I know you feel lonely, but you're not alone. We're with you. And so I just want to say that as a qualifier before we get into some possible um, unraveling of the yarn, so to speak, about what Scripture might have to say about sex and singleness. So for our passage today, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, which is Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, we're in chapter seven. It's gonna be a little bit of a long passage. We're not gonna talk about all of it, 
but I think it's, a, it's, it's the longest and most sustained discussion on sexual and um, single and marriage relationships that we have in scripture. And so I think it'll help us form our imagination a little bit. So this is what Paul is saying. We're gonna read verse one through 16 and then verse 25 through 40. That's how it starts. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is well for a man not to touch a woman. That's what they wrote about, that's what they asked. But because of cases of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a set time to devote yourselves to prayer. And then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This I say by way of concession, not of command. I wish that all were as I myself am, meaning single. But each has a particular gift from God, one having one kind and another a different kind. So to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is well for them to remain unmarried as I am. But if they're not practicing self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to be aflame with passion. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does separate, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, and not the Lord, that if any believer has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy through her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such a case, the brother or sister is not bound. It is to peace that God has called you. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. And we're gonna jump ahead to verse 25. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give my opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the impending crisis, it is well for you to remain as you are. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you do not sin, and if a virgin marries, she does not sin. Yet those who marry will experience distress in this life, and I would spare you that. I mean, brothers and sisters, the appointed time has grown short. From now on, let even those who have wives be as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no possessions, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the affairs of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about the affairs of the world, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried woman and the virgin are anxious about the affairs of the Lord, so that they may be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about the affairs of the world, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to put any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and unhindered devotion to the Lord." If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his fiance, if his passions are strong and so it has to be, let him marry as he wishes. It is no sin. Let them marry. But if someone stands firm in his resolve, being under no necessity but having his own desire under control, 
and has determined in his own mind to keep her as his fiance, he will do well. So then he who marries his fiance does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if the husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my judgment, she is more blessed if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. All right, so before we get into the passage, I wanna do a little history, a little history lesson. Uh, In case you didn't know, it's extremely difficult to be single in our society as a Christian. Did you know that? It's really, really difficult to be a Christian and be single in our society. Now, what you might not know is why it's so difficult, what we've inherited, factors that have gone in to making it really tough. And I wanna sort of detail two of them. The first is the Reformation. So uh, FYI, a little basic church history. When we read about the church in the New Testament, there's one church. And there was one church, one Catholic church, and just so you know, Catholic means universal. There was one universal church until 1054. In the year 1054, they had what's called the Great Schism, where the Eastern Orthodox Church split, and they did their thing in the East, and the Roman Catholic Church did their thing in the West. And they divided over many things, politics, theology, just human sinfulness, that's just what we do. So then you had two churches. You had the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic. And then in 1517, of which we're actually celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation this year, In 1517, we had what's called the Protestant Reformation, and the Roman Catholic Church split again. So, what happened in 1517 is Martin Luther, who was Catholic, he nailed up 95 theses. 95 things that he saw were elements of corruption within the Roman Catholic Church, and one of them was related to clergy celibacy. At that time, clergy were required to be celibate. He said that that should not be the case. Clergy should be allowed to marry. Now, the whole history of clergy celibacy is very long and very convoluted. Um, For our purposes today, what we need to know is this. In the 11th century is when it became papal law that clergy had to remain celibate, that priests had to remain unmarried. Now, why did they make it papal law then? They were in a feudalistic society. And in the feudalistic society, marriage and the family were central political units of that world. It was very common, as we've seen in movies and read in history, for powerful couples and families to marry off their sons and daughters as a way to gain more power, as a way to gain more land. So marriage was sort of this political pawn. It was a means to a greater political end. The church, sort of like the church is trying to be a counter witness. And so the church made it papal law that clergy should not marry. They should be celibate. That was their way of being a witnessing society, a counter witness. That the church as a community was a voluntary society. It was not similar to the institution of the state. That is to say, um, if one church, if the pastor married someone in another church, he didn't acquire that church as well. It was different. It was not subject to feudalistic uh, political maneuvering. The other thing about the Catholic Church at that time, uh, and still, is marriage is a sacrament. And I don't want to get into sort of sacramentality, especially if you didn't grow up Catholic, but marriage was a way, it was an institution of God's that mediated grace, which means this. 
everything about the church is meant to witness. And so for the Catholic church, when the world looks at a marriage, they should see how God relates with his church. It should be a visible representation of Jesus's relationship with the church. And so since marriage had sort of fallen on hard times and had become this political game, they sort of made clergy celibate as a way to maintain uh, the sacrament nature of marriage. The Reformation reverses that. The Reformation reverses that. First, they desacralize marriage. Marriage is no longer a sacrament in Protestant churches. If you grew up in any other church in the States other than a Catholic one, we have pretty much two sacraments, two important symbols, which are what? The Lord's table and baptism. Those became our two primary expressions of, of God's grace. So that, that is traced back to the Reformation. It desacralizes marriage. And also, and this happens over time, the church and state kind of get in the same business of regulating and governing marriages. Fast forward to the 21st century, and we have huge fights over what that looks like because we're in the same business. Secondly, the other aspect of the Reformation is that human nature, and especially within the church, we look to the pastor or the priest as a model of Christ-likeness, right? That's obvious, and that's good. But from this point onward, the married pastor becomes um, the most common situation. So it happens subliminally, but the way teaching develops in the Protestant churches is that marriage replaces celibacy as the primary pathway to Christ-likeness. Marriage becomes the primary pathway that a Christ, the primary journey a Christian walks if they want to be holy, if they want to follow Jesus, because all of the pastors were married now. Now, there were other huge byproducts of the Reformation, um, which there's a lot of scholarly research that I can point you to if you're interested, related to, to women, to the redomestication of women, where a woman's role um, is relegated back to the house and exclusively to the house, I should say that. But what we find ourselves in the present day is a model of church organization in which if you're a single Protestant pastor, you can't find a job. It was really fascinating. There was an article in the New York Times like two or three years ago, and it was detailing this guy who was a single Protestant pastor who believed in celibacy, and his credentials were insane, and he couldn't find a job. And he could never get a clear answer of why it is, but what we've inherited is this thing of, well, what's wrong with you? Why can't you hold down a girlfriend? What's, what's going on? That's, that's the life we're living in. The Reformation, and again, the Reformation did a lot of good things. Hopefully, you know, we're all adults in here. We realize that there's never purely good or purely bad. It's great. It's complex. The Reformation did a lot of good things. But one of the byproducts, at least related to relationships, is that um, marriage became the primary pathway to Christ-likeness. Now, the other factor that makes it really hard to be single and a Christian in our society is modern society's foundation of liberalism. And I mean liberalism as sort of like a, a political ideal. That is, um, that self-actualization is found purely in the individual. Each person determines truth and meaning and morality for his or herself. 
This is, as uh, one scholar put it, it's the West long process of emancipating the individual from all authority outside the sovereign self. That is, that's what we're about in the West, individual freedom. Each person gets to determine what's right and what's good for his or her self. And in that process, we somehow settled upon the idea that the sexual self is the ideal self. That we are in a project of emancipating each individual from confines of authority. Each person gets to determine what's best for them. And we decided, our collective decision somehow, that the best way to reach self-actualization is through sexual experimentation. Or just one sexuality. That's the, the best way to emancipate to free oneself from authority. It's almost like the litmus test for self-actualization. So what do we have? If you're a Christian and you're single in the West in the 21st century, you have a church which says the best way to holiness is to get married, and you have a state, a country, which says the best way to holiness, to self-actualization, is sex without authority. You see the dilemma? You're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place here. Can't win over here, can't win over here. Now, part of sort of our modern society foundation of liberalism means that our sexual ethic is self-determined. Everyone determines what's best and right for him or herself. And as that evolved, most likely what we've developed is this idea of romanticism. And we all sort of... um, We're raised in this, we're steeped in this. Romanticism says this, the assumption behind romanticism is that love is the necessary condition for sex and marriage. Now we define love differently, but generally what we mean by love, love as emotional connection, as emotional compatibility, as you fulfill something in me, I feel something with you. That love, um, and it goes deeper and and it's obviously Um, more complex than that, but that love is sort of the the foundation for sex and marriage. It's ingrained in us. Anyone grow up watching Disney movies? Yeah, I I know there are more hands than that. All of us, if you're a millennial, all of us, that's what we were told from a young age, that the best way to live your life is to fall in love, get married, and live happily ever after. That's what we were taught. Now, it was a reaction against Um, marriage being used as a pawn, as a prop for the state. So I get where it comes from, but there's an irony in this romanticism. And it's pointed out by Stanley Hauerwas, and I really like how he says this. He says the irony is that romanticism, which began as an attempt to recapture the power of intimate relations, as opposed to the formal or institutionalized relationship, now finds itself recommending the development of people who are actually incapable of sustaining intimate relationships. For intimacy depends on the willingness to give of the self, to place oneself in the hands of another, to be vulnerable, even if that means we may be hurt. In other words, what he's saying is we are a culture that only knows how to produce lonely people. Do you know that millennials dedicate one hour each week to selfies? Yeah, one hour each week to selfies. That actually seemed low to me when I read that. We are in a culture that has said the individual reigns. I choose what is best for me. I choose what I want. 
And what I most want is for someone to choose me, right? What I most want is to be standing on the subway platform and someone put their arms around me and say, I choose you, I claim you. But that person is not gonna put their arms around me because what they most want is for someone to choose them. And we're all afraid of stepping on each other's toes and infringing on each other's rights. We sort of created this, this, this culture um, where we define intimacy for ourselves, which is fundamentally impossible because intimacy by its very nature is to put myself in someone's hands and say, tell me who I am. Choose me, claim me, tell me who I am. And now hopefully in the purest sense, it's both people putting themselves into each other's hands and telling one another, you are good, you are true, you are beautiful, I love you, I claim you. Now hopefully that's what it is. But we've created the society where I'm supposed to define intimacy for myself, where you're supposed to define it for yourself, but that's impossible. That's fundamentally impossible. Now there's something destructively alluring in that, isn't there? There's something like destructively alluring about just getting to know someone, maybe a couple, couple times and be like, you know what, I choose you. You and me, we're partners in this. Anna, she actually uh, did that with one of her best friends. Um, it was in a time where she was kind of lonely in Portland and she knows she needed friends, so she met a girl at a party named Angel, and she went right, they talked for a bit, and she went right up to her, and you're like, you know what, you're my new best friend. And Angel later tells, uh, this girl is crazy. But they became best friends, our best friends to this day. There's something destructively alluring in that, is there not, of just saying, I choose you. Now, I'm not saying everyone elope tomorrow, though if you do, I know a good wedding cinematographer. <laughs> but it does say this is what we've inherited. This is the culture we've inherited. So, where does that leave the Christian single? Where does that leave the Christian single? Now, anytime you're asking questions about sex, you're asking ethical questions, right? You're asking questions of behavior. Is this right? What should I do in this situation? What should I do in that situation? Which will devolve into endless fractures and subfractures of like, this versus this, such that you might have statements like it depends on what the definition of is, is. When we start asking questions of behavior, we could get to that. But what we fail to realize in conversations about ethics and behavior is that there's a primary question. The first question is not what are we to do? The question, the first question is who are we? Who am I? What kind of people are we as the church? See, the question behind behavior is identity, right? Like, I mean, to use a simplistic example, in feudal times, if you were a prince and the question was, should I go out and mow the lawn? You'd be like, well, no, because my identity is a prince. Princes don't mow lawns. Though in, in Jesus' kingdom, they do, just FYI. But you see how that works? Behind the question of behavior is identity. Who am I? And the New Testament tells the story of Jesus forming and shaping his church. And what you'll find, friends, as we're about to detail out, is that the church of the New Testament pretty much opposes the idols of liberalism and the mistakes of the Reformation. It opposes both the idols of liberalism and the mistakes of the Reformation. So when you study the church of the New Testament, the first thing you find is that the New Testament church is a public people. 
It's a public people. What we also might fail to realize sometimes is that our sexual ethics are a political statement. Just FYI, everything is politics. Every matter of behavior is because it comes from an ideology that we believe. It's all politics. So our sexual ethics, too, are political statements. Liberalism says sex is a private matter. It can stay in the bedroom, and you can come to your public sphere and be okay because you define it for yourself. The church says that sex is public because Jesus is forming a community whose purpose is to witness to the truth that God is fixing the world through the Messiah. And the Messiah's body is the church, us. What is that saying? It's saying that in the church, our sex lives, both married and single, our sex lives are subjected to the prior affirmation that our life as a community, as Hope Brooklyn, is meant to witness to Jesus' story. That's who we are. So every decision we make is based off of our identity as witnesses to the kingdom, as a public people. Hauerwas goes on to say that the ecclesiology, and what that means is the structuring of a church, the ecclesiology of most of the more liberal sexual ethics assumes that the church exists for the spiritual enrichment of the individuals composing it. If I were to ask you, why does the church exist? I know some of you and myself would say, well, we exist for spiritual enrichment. Not true. Not according to the New Testament. Hope Brooklyn does not exist to enrich you spiritually. You are Hope Brooklyn. And you exist to witness to the world that Jesus loves them. You were called to no other purpose than that of a witness. Hope Brooklyn does not exist for you to come and consume it as if there was some it to be consumed. We are Hope Brooklyn and we exist to be consumed by the world. See, and that even it shows how far we've come where many of the churches in America, if, you were, if you're asking people, why does this church exist? They would say, to feed me spiritually. That is premised on the idol of liberalism, that it's about me. According to the New Testament, that's not the case. Jesus formed the church to witness to his story. So the hard truth of the gospel for every one of us in here, single or married, is that you were called to a greater purpose than the fulfillment of your own life. Your life actually won't be fulfilled until it's offered up to a greater story than just your own. We were raised in an environment that says that we are the protagonist of the world's greatest story, are we not? Every single one of us is the hero of the greatest story being written. Not in this story. We are secondary characters invited to follow the primary character and to witness to how good that primary character is. That is what we are called to. And it's so countercultural, and I know it's probably bending our minds a little bit, but actually, Jesus says, your life will be most fulfilled when you recognize your identity as a secondary character. Most fulfilled. The church does not have a mission. The church is God's mission, which is why we're a public people. See, from the start, the church said that sex belonged within the marriage covenant. And the reason why it said that, and this is important for us, the reason why it said that, because what is questionable about forms of sex outside marriage is not that it's sex. Christians are not prudes, we're not Puritans. 
We actually are one of the few faiths that affirm the body and all its beauty and splendor. God made orgasms, friends. We affirm the body and all its beauty. That what's questionable about forms of sex outside marriage is not that it's sex, nor that it's outside marriage. It's not about these arbitrary rules that we set up within the community to be like, oh, you're breaking them, you're in, you're out. That's not the issue. The issue is we're a public people. The issue is that our identity is as witnesses. The issue is that the withholding of public pledge constitutes both a handicap for the marriage's success and fundamental evidence that the love is not true, at least love as defined by Jesus and by the gospel. It's not sex without marriage. It's marriage without honesty. And Christians are a truthful people. What's questionable about forms of sex, and I'll let you fill in the blank of whatever you want to fill in there. Outside marriage, it's not that it's outside marriage. We're not concerned with arbitrary rules. It's not even that it's sex. We're not prudes. It's that it misunderstands the underlying logic of what it is to be a Christian. And what it is to be a Christian is that your life is meant to witness to the good news of Jesus. What it means, there's something far more important about your life than whether or not you're getting some. There's something far more important about my life than whether or not I'm getting some. Sex is relegated to its rightful place within the church. We are a public people. The New Testament church is also a people who witnesses to God's redemptive work. Well, what does it have to say about our sex lives? Well, it means we have to affirm with Paul that singleness is the preferred way of Christian life. In the strongest possible language, the basis of intelligibility of the Christian understanding of marriage makes sense only in relation to the early church's legitimation of singleness. So this is just one verse that was throughout our entire passage. But Paul says to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is well for them to remain unmarried as I am. But if they're not practicing self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than be aflame with passion. See, what you realize when you read the New Testament is that many of its characters, its primary heroes, were single. Jesus and Paul both were. And the New Testament has very little to say about sex and marriage. We read one of it, what it has to say, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a set time to devote yourselves to prayer. This I say by way of concession, not of command. I wish that all were as I myself am. What's he saying? The only thing he has to say about sex within marriage is stop having it sometimes. So that you can pray, so that you can remember that your marriage is not meant to gratify yourselves. It's not meant to fulfill yourselves. You married because you're witnessing to who God is. And sex can cloud that sometimes, so stop having it and devote yourselves to prayer. The one who marries his fiance does well, the one who refrains from marriage will do better. Singleness, we have to, I mean, we might not believe it. Just so you know, I'm not sure I believe everything I'm saying today because I was raised watching Disney movies because I was raised in a Protestant church. So I haven't seen this lived out, but studying the scriptures is clear. Singleness is a better indication than marriage of the church's role in the world as witnesses to Jesus. Hauerwas says this, he goes, the early church's legitimation of singleness as a form of life symbolized the necessity of the church to grow through witness and conversion. 
Singleness was legitimate, not because sex was thought to be a particularly questionable activity, as we already said, but the mission of the church was such that between the times, between when Jesus ascended and when he comes back, the church required those who were capable of complete service to the kingdom. Friends, I don't think we grasp how radical it is, the idea that the first Christians were Jews. They were Jewish. The first Christians, the Christians of the New Testament, were Jews, thoroughly steeped in Jewish culture, Jewish worldviews, Jewish religions. Now, why that's important. The first commandment given by God to the Jewish people is to have a baby. Be fruitful and multiply. You read the Jewish scriptures, you always see God saying, um, your first task is to get married and have a baby. Let the Jewish people increase. I had a friend in Atlanta who was Jewish named Micah. He was such a cool guy. But he was like, we'd have conversations about this. Um, he'd fool around with whoever he wanted, but he'd always say, when it's time to get married, I gotta marry a Jewish girl. Because their first task, their identity as Jews was to give birth to a Jew. So much so, so much so that Mosaic law had this law where essentially if, if Anna and I were Jewish and I died and I didn't have a child, it would be law that my brother would impregnate her so that my name would carry on. Yeah, we're grossed out by that, but notice we're grossed out because sex means something different for us. It meant something different for the Jewish people, right? See how we privilege certain ideas. What this means, here's what's so radical. In order to become a Jew, you were born a Jew. Yet the first Christians who were Jews settled almost immediately on the reality that you're not born a Christian. You convert to Christianity. You're baptized into the faith. Do you see how huge that is? The first Christians who were Jews, who knew that you had to give birth to a Jew, that was your first step, that was your, your highest priority, decided, settled on it almost immediately that you don't give birth to Christians. You convert, you're baptized. The future is not up to the family, but the church. The church is the new family. The church is the new family. So the issue is that Christianity is not in Jewish blood. Judaism was in Jewish blood. Christianity is not in Jewish blood. There's new blood. It's Jesus' resurrected blood. We must remember, says Hauerwas, that the sacrifice made by the single Christian is not that of giving up sex but the much more significant sacrifice of giving up heirs. There can be no more radical act than this, as it is the clearest institutional expression that one's future is not guaranteed by the family, but by the church. The church, the harbinger of the kingdom of God, is now the source of our primary loyalty. The church is the family. So everyone is the parent, charged with raising the child in the knowledge of the God, of God. That's why we have baby dedications. That's why I love with brunch seeing children run around upstairs. You're a parent. When we dedicate a baby to the church, we ask everyone, do you accept your responsibility to be a parent of this child, to invite them into this story worth dying for? The family, the family unit, and I know this is tough to believe because what do we grow up? Especially if we grew up in evangelicalism. <clears throat> we grew up with focus on the family, which I'm not shooting that down, I'm not. But we grew up with that. 
where we said the primary unit of the church was the family. That if you're single and a Christian, you need to get married because that's the pathway to holiness. That's not according to the New Testament. The primary unit is the church itself, made up of both single and married Christians. In the New Testament, I, as a married Christian, I have to justify my decision to the single Christians in the room. The single Christians don't have to justify their decision to me. So what does that mean for Hope Brooklyn? It means at the very least, there will be both married and single Christians at every stage of leadership, at every stage of shaping the course and the identity of this community. It means the single is not on the fringe of Hope Brooklyn, as if they're unsanctified until they get married. They're at the center, they're at the core. Because we have a primary pathway bigger than our sex lives, whether we're married or single. So we're a people who are public. We're a people who witnesses to God's redemptive work. We are also, the New Testament church is a people where sex is not the primary pathway to the ideal self. We grew up saying that if you wanted to emancipate yourself from from authority, if you wanted to uh, reach self-actualization, the best way to do that was through sex. The New Testament church says that's not true. And it's really fascinating. When you look at the Greco-Roman Empire, the first century, um, and we talked about this a bit before, the way it worked was that men could have sex with anyone they wanted below their social status. They could have sex with women, or it was very common to have sex with children in the first century. Women could only have sex with their husbands. And you see the church from the start say, that's not how it's gonna be. If you're married, if you formed a covenant with someone, you can only have sex with that person. And if you don't, if you step outside, the woman can divorce you, which was huge, because women had no power to do that in the first century. So women are fully equal to men, and sex is only in marriage. Uh, You see a lot of scholars talk about Rome, and I think it's really fascinating about sort of naming our own idols. Rome was very loose sexually and very tight financially. The church, on the other hand, was very loose financially and very tight sexually. It's fascinating, isn't it? I think the reason why is it's the whole idea of selfish versus selfless. Who's at the core of the story? If we're loose sexually but tight financially, it's about me. But if I'm loose financially, if I'm generous but tight sexually, it's because I recognize that my life is to witness to who Jesus is. It's actually selfless. It's a way to give to others. It's a way to deny myself for the sake of witness. But what you see in the New Testament is that the church, the community of saints, is the primary pathway to the ideal self, to Christ-likeness. The church is the primary form of intimacy, not marriage and not sex. Because love, Jesus' form of love is not emotional attachment. Love is fidelity. Love is faithfulness. You've heard me say this before, but Christians do not get married because they fall in love. Christians get married to learn what love is. Because you always marry the wrong person. It's true. That's what Howard Ross says, and it's true. You marry the wrong person. You think you're marrying person X, and then one year from now, when stuff hits the fan, they become person Y. So when you stand in that altar and you pledge yourself to them, you're not promising to marry the the woman or the man standing before you. You're promising to marry a complete stranger that you have no idea who they're gonna be five, 10, 20 years from now. That's because love for Christians, for Jesus, is faithfulness, is choosing. 
It's covenant. It's not emotional gratification. So Paul counsels. So any basis of marriage outside fidelity will be discredited immediately. Because in a couple years, they won't fulfill the same way. Stuff gets hard and you have to figure out what to do. So Paul counsels married people to stop having sex for a while, to devote themselves to prayer. Remember that sex is a secondary pathway to God's form of intimacy. Or at least according to the New Testament, it's the third pathway. First is the church. If you wanna experience God's form of intimacy, if you wanna be transformed into Christ's likeness, we discover it as the church. Second, at least for this sermon today, would be marriage. And then third would be sex within marriage. Marriage is one pathway to learning and practices Jesus' form of love, but it's not primary. Which is why the church from the start has always talked about chastity, about faithfulness, about the A word, abstinence. And the reason why we did that is not because we're prudes. We love the body. The reason is because we have a different vision of what life is about. Singles prove faithfulness by choosing a way of life where there are more exciting adventures to be had than sexual ones. And marrieds prove chastity by choosing to have sex or to be faithful to the one they're married to even when they don't want to. And obviously hear me, in no way is this advocating or or implying marital rape because that's a real conversation. I'm... My presupposition here is that both parties are consistently subjecting themselves to one another or choosing one another. But it is to say, marriage prove faithfulness, we prove chastity by choosing the one we're married to, even we have no idea why we're married to them. That's our form of faithfulness. But the church is the primary pathway to Christ's likeness, to intimacy. Because as Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried is anxious about the affairs of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man or woman is anxious about the affairs of the world, how to please their spouse. Their interests are divided. So the question is not, is masturbation a sin? That's the wrong question. The question is, how does masturbation make us a faithful, sacrificial people accountable to one another? How does masturbation express our witness to the adventure of the gospel? How does the practice of it form us as worshipers of Jesus, not worshipers of our idols, which are ourselves? Because ultimately, there is only one good reason to remain single or to get married as a Christian. And it has everything to do with our discipleship. So where does that leave us? I know this is difficult. I'm I'm preaching this sermon to myself today because I don't understand all of it. We grew up in a society where Disney said that romance was the best way to live, where society told us that sex is how you discover who you are, and the church told us that family is the primary pathway toward Christ-likeness. The New Testament presents a vision of a church opposite of all of these. Witness to the gospel is the best way to live. Intimacy within the church is how you discover who you are, And singleness is the primary form of Christ-likeness. Where do we even go with that? I guess it starts by affirming this is what it says. It's the best way. Now we figure out what that means. So three final notes. Is it wrong to want to get married? Not at all. Not at all. 
If the story of the gospel is true, then what it's all about is the living God coming to us and inviting us into a way of life that he says will be more fulfilling. But he knows our stories. He knows where we came from. He knows our hurts and our fears. And he wraps them up into his arms and he starts weaving his redemption through it. We grew up in an environment where we were taught from a young age, we've internalized it so deeply that romance is the best way to live. So acknowledge it. Acknowledge it to him. It's not wrong in the slightest to want to get married. Offer it to him. Tell Jesus you want it. But tell Jesus you want him more. And check your heart if you're not sure you can say that. Because at least that's, that's what we're working toward to a way of life, single or married, where we say, Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. Point number two, what if I do masturbate? What if I do have casual sex? What if I am having sex with my boyfriend or my girlfriend? What do I do? Don't forget who Jesus is and his form of discipleship. Please don't. He's not a tyrant He's not these arbitrary rules. That's not the gospel in the slightest. It's an invitation into a way of life that he promises is more fulfilling. And even if you don't take him up on his invitation, grace abounds in this story. Grace abounds, but he'll keep inviting. He'll keep inviting. So search your heart. Talk to someone. If the church is the primary pathway, everyone doesn't need to know your business, but someone does. Someone in this community needs to know everything about you. That's what the the New Testament is offering to us. And finally, I said this already, the single are not on the fringe of Hope Brooklyn, the single are at the center. For one's sexual position does not define the self, one's witness to the gospel does. And the primary form of intimacy is the church for both single and married Christians. Our primary form of intimacy is the church. So everyone's lonely. Everyone is standing on the platform wanting someone to throw their arms around them and choose them. What if Hope Brooklyn were that type of community? What if we dared to believe what the New Testament says? That the primary way of intimacy, the primary form of Christ's likeness was, was the church, was us. What if new people showed up and not in a creepy way, but we put our arms around them and said, I choose you. Wait till the second time they come back before you do that, all right? Don't do it the first time. But what if we lived into this vision, this reality that said that our way of life as Christians has more important things happening than whether or not we're having sex. There are more important things. We witness to a story that's so incredible, that's so amazing, that this, this, this intimacy, this becomes the way. So open up, throw yourselves onto one another. That's my challenge. Find someone, say, I choose you. You ready? You're going to get to know everything about me. And so if you're married, dating, single, and sexually active, single and not sexually active, intimacy is found at the church. So seek counsel and prayer. Seek Jesus together. Let's dare to believe this. Let's dare to believe 
that our loneliness is combated, not through marriage, not through sex, but through one another, through the gospel. Let's dare to believe that. I wanna invite the worship team back up. Will you pray with me? Jesus, you constantly are inviting us into a way of life we're scared to embark on. We want to define our own lives and we want to keep you at arm's distance. But you're like, that's not the way it works. That's not how it works. We are so content making mud pies in the dirt because we can't understand what you mean by a holiday at sea. We are so content with lonely lives because we can't even begin to understand how the church could be the filler of that loneliness. You've called us to be witnesses. You've called us to witness to a lonely world that they don't have to be lonely. And Lord, we've made mistakes as we've figured out today. The Reformation did a lot of good things, but it made some mistakes that we've inherited. And I know Hope Brooklyn's not gonna be the perfect church. We're gonna make mistakes too. But would you give us courage to believe your words? Would you give us courage to step toward you? Would you give people in this room courage to reveal themselves to another? To be a community where we dare to believe that this, us, is the primary way that we become like you. Where this is the new family, where you don't give birth to Christians, you're baptized into the faith. Where we're inviting all into our community, to the table. Lord, for the people who are single and lonely in this room, would you comfort them? you tell them that they are fully seen and fully known by you, that you love them deeply, that life with you, no matter how hard it feels, is far better than life anywhere else. Would you give them a heart to trust you? And Lord, if there's anyone in this room who doesn't know you, who's not sure what they think about you, they were compelled by this I would ask you in this room just pray pray to a God you're not sure you believe in and say Jesus what is this story what is this gospel this good news I'll take a step towards you reveal this story to me hope Brooklyn is your church Lord And we do dare to believe that you will form us into the image of the New Testament community. We want to be that. You have permission. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.